These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last time, we looked at the pieces of what makes an ancient Israelite settlement, or at least what some claim make up an Israelite settlement. And the last piece that we discussed was how relatively egalitarian the Israelite settlements seem to be. This may, as some have claimed, have been due to the religious humility and charity of these faithful worshippers. Or it may be that they were just poor, small communities, and after the initial rush of conquest, they don't seem to have accomplished very much of geopolitical significance for the next 200 years. Today's episode will look much more heavily at the written sources and follow the biblical narrative more closely. Now, I'm not sure where exactly we left off in our biblical narrative before, because I keep getting pulled down rabbit holes of one kind or another, but a good place to pick up is back in Joshua chapter 13. Until this point, Joshua has been winning and winning and winning and losing occasionally, but we hear him winning during the entrance into Canaan, crossing the Jordan River. Then we hear about him undertaking a campaign against the cities which are on the southern edge of the settlement region that we see archaeologically. Then we see him with a campaign against the northern edge of that same archaeologically attested settlement region. Then we see him claim to have beaten pretty much everyone of note in ancient Canaan. Then we get to chapter 13, and generations of Bible readers who were paying attention suddenly get terribly confused. The chapter begins, When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old. Gee, thanks, God. And there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and Gerashites, from the Shehor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron in the north, all of it counted as Canaanite, though held by the five Philistine rulers of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The territory of the Avites on the south, all the land of the Canaanites from Ara to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorites, the area of Byblos, all Lebanon to the east, from Balgad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. Whew, that's a lot of names. Now, first off, I thought Joshua already conquered everything. But here we're hearing from the voice of no less an authority than God himself that this actually didn't happen. This is because the first 12 chapters of Joshua are a chronicle. And in the style of these ancient chronicles, they don't mention defeats and they magnify each victory. You go back two more episodes on that. Uh, but then we look at what is left unconquered in Canaan, and it's actually pretty significant. The Philistine land is the Pentopolis in the south, the modern-day region of Gaza and areas around that. But it seems they might have territory outside the Pentopolis itself. Likely, their stronghold is in these five cities, but they've managed to send their own armies out, just as Joshua has been doing, no doubt representing to their own people that they've seen an unbroken sweep of grand conquests, just as Joshua has. 
Now then there are the Gerushites, about whom much is speculated but little is known for sure. They were likely a rising power of local Canaanites who made good on the chaos of the Bronze Age collapse to build their own little power center. They may have an oblique mention in an Amarna letter and another mention from Shalmaneser of Assyria, but both of these are uncertain, and even if they were mentioned, we don't really know that much about them from those mentions. Now, the Avites are another obscure group with no sure extra-biblical mentions, and they may have been another set of invaders into the land, just like the Philistines and Israelites. Or they could be native, uh, like nomad people just rising up out of nowhere. We don't know. They're having their brief moment in the sun before getting conquered by the Kaftorites, themselves another set of invaders. The Kaftorites, contrary to earlier scholarship, have now pretty convincingly have been shown to not have been from the island of Crete, and were instead from somewhere further in the Aegean, making them one of the general Sea People's movement, and possibly related to the Philistines, or they could have been Anatolian in origin. Now, they in turn get assimilated and or destroyed before making it into secular history, so they don't really matter all that much, except as a reminder that far more is going on in the world than most of our simple historical pictures can usually paint in this period. Now, the Canaanites at this point are pushed increasingly to their coastal cities, from Sidon to Byblos, and are well on their way to becoming the Phoenicians that the later Greeks would come into contact with. Now, it's far from clear how much cultural distance there was between the ancient Canaanite and classical Phoenician culture. Certainly, the Phoenicians themselves saw a pretty straight-line descent from their Canaanite ancestors. And even the much later Carthaginians, themselves a Phoenician colony originally, were still sometimes referred to as Canaani by their trading partners that being a version of what we would call Canaanite. And yet, it would seem logical that losing a good deal of inland territories of their culture and ending up so focused more heavily on the coast, at least more than before, would have at least some impact on the culture over the time. But this is beyond the available evidence so far, just something interesting to think about. Now then you have a mention of the Amorites up north, who we've seen as an emerging threat to the Assyrians. Now the Amorites will continue to push into Israel alongside the other invaders, but for whatever reason they never focus in this direction as strongly as they do into Mesopotamia. Probably because it's a lot more poor and miserable than the Euphrates River settlements are. The boundaries of Egypt, interestingly enough, are given as the river Shihon. Now, we don't actually know which river this is, but the general guess is Wadi el-Arish, which is just a bit south and west of modern Israel, or at least the modern Israeli border in Sinai. Now, this is a bit tough, because we aren't given a year that our geographer is listing off these territories, just a very vague idea that Joshua was old. And given his perhaps implausible lifespan, this may actually be intended as a geography of a rather later period. 
Now, from Egyptian records, we get the sense that Egyptian hold on Canaan weakens significantly even around the death of Ramses the Great in the 1220s and onward. And things fell apart relatively slowly over the following century. Most Egyptian historians don't consider the Egyptians to be completely kicked out of Canaan until the 1130s or so, though the trajectory of the decline is hard to see clearly. For Joshua's chronicler to be listing Egypt as so far south, assuming that Shihan really is the Wadi el-Arish, then he's either talking about a very late period in history, or he's considering Egypt as a geographical unit rather than a political one, and simply avoiding discussion of the Egyptian forts present outside of Egyptian geographical territory. Now, this is fair as far as things go. This is a one-paragraph sketch of regional geography, and to simplify a bit in that context is fine. But something of note is that the book of Joshua mentions Egypt 16 times, and every single one of those is either a reference back to the Exodus or to the geographical extent of Egypt as the southern border of the Canaan region. Now, this is odd, but it's actually pretty similar to Deuteronomy and Numbers, as well as later in Judges and Ruth. One of those five books should have covered the year 1207 BCE, no matter how wiggly you get with your chronology. And I figure, I figure it would probably be the book of Joshua, but I mean, there's some who think that 1207 would be Numbers or, or Judges, uh, but why in all of these five books is there no mention at all of Egypt as a political power in Canaan? In fact, we don't hear anything at all about Egyptian armies at any point between the Exodus and Jeroboam over in the monarchy period, a gap of at least 200 years, if not more. Now, some of this may be explained by the fact that Egypt was a waning power in this period, and yet we know for sure in the Merneptah Stila, that there was at least some sort of battle between the Egyptians and the Israelites at some point in these five books in the year 1207, which goes completely unrecorded on the Israelite side. And this actually gets us to the other side of the genre of Joshua. We talked about the exaggeration of victories being typical of the style of these conquest narratives throughout the Near East, and whether this represents a distortion of the facts or a mere idiomatic expression of them. But the other side of this is that defeats in this genre are almost, I say almost, never mentioned. We see this a lot in the wars that cross between the Assyrians and Babylonians, where we can usually tell who won a battle based on who actually bothered to write down that the battle happened in the first place. Now, Joshua does mention defeats occasionally, but then again, so do many Babylonian records. These mentions of defeats are always in the context of the gods, however, and are always mentioned in the context of a greater religious agenda. This is perfectly consistent with all the defeats mentioned in the Old Testament, and we can reasonably assume from this that the defeats which we know happened, but which aren't mentioned, probably just didn't look good theologically, for whatever reason. Now, the first defeat 
that we don't hear anything about in the, in the Bible, which we know happened, was Merneptah's victory over the people of Israel in 1207. Now, in the famous Merneptah stela, Israel is mentioned as a people, not a settled kingdom, which could indicate that 1207 still saw the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. However, it could also represent an early period in Joshua's conquest when they were still essentially Habiru warriors and had not settled down because the Jordan River Valley hadn't been fully cleared out and secured yet. I personally prefer the former idea, putting Joshua a little bit later in history than 1207. It makes some of the archaeology a bit easier, none of it fits as cleanly as we would like, but the latter idea also has some good support behind it, and I could see it going either way, really. We could construct pretty easily a narrative in which Joshua's army spent 12 chapters winning and winning and a bit of losing, but the whole enterprise was mostly sustained by their own momentum. And then, after chapter 12, they stop initiating new unified campaigns, and they divide from one mostly united force into 12 separate tribes, who are scattered around the land and undertaking their own individual I see, campaigns, but really it's, they're just fighting, which is just what these kinds of societies would do. They just fight their neighbors whenever there was a chance to fight their neighbors and take their stuff. Now, if at the end of Joshua's victories, they faced an Egyptian army and had their momentum shattered, it would be very typical of a tribal group like this to essentially fade away very quickly as a unified force, though also it is in the nature of nomadic barbarian tribes to leave behind a bunch of tiny bandit groups making their own violent way through the land. Now, am I saying this is what happened? I'm not. This is a suggestive reading consistent with the narrative arc of Joshua and the extra-biblical records of the Israelite people. And so getting back to our story, the latter half of the book of Joshua is all about discussing the 12 tribes as individual units and the various places that they lived and the people that they conquered or failed to conquer. And if you, it's been a while since Sunday school for you maybe, or maybe you never went to Sunday school, I've got a bunch of maps, I've got a bunch of pictures and references up on oldeststories.net. I haven't uh, been updating episode by episode anymore. There's just one big post with all the cool stuff I've found about ancient Israel. And as I move into the monarchy in later periods, I might stick some stuff on there. Um, it's, if you're interested, oldeststories.net. I do put the website up at the start of every episode, and then I neglect the website more or less. But that's beside the point. The last section, chapter 24, does something a little bit different than just talking about these individual units. It claims that at the end of Joshua's long life, he gathered together a meeting of the 12 tribes, his former military coalition, and attempted once again to unite them. Now, we see this pretty commonly among Semitic tribes, trying to either unite for conquest and gain, or for mutual self-defense against other people who are uniting for conquest and gain. But Joshua is attempting to unite them not so much behind his personal military leadership, but behind a shared religion. 
If this is accurate, it is, I think, unusual historically. Given that we have some indications that the people of Israel, even at this early date, may have had a peculiar religion, or at least that there existed a religious faction following peculiar laws, it is possible he thought this would bring the tribes together in a genuine unity. And as it so happened, he was half right. The peculiar religious mission was never held strongly by all Israelites all the time, and apostasy is pretty much the theme of the entire Old Testament. But the Bible tells us that these early Israelites did adopt a common governance structure and maintain diplomatic ties with each other, possibly above and beyond the diplomatic ties that they maintained with other nations as they settled into regional politics. All of which gets us to the book of Judges. Now, historically speaking, the book of Judges is an odd one. The general picture it presents of how the people of Israel lived and interacted with their neighbors is extremely compelling. Everything they do is the kind of things that we know tribes, both settled and pastoral, engaged in regularly. And if it was written today, I would consider it to be an extremely well-researched historical fiction, painting a great picture of the common experience of extreme antiquity. At the same time, it's an extremely theological work, probably more than anything we've seen since the first couple chapters of Genesis. It's presented explicitly as a set of six cycles of God delivering the people from oppression, the people then failing in increasingly severe ways, then God allowing the oppression to return as punishment. To start with the foundation, we know for certain that this is not presenting a purely linear history describing exactly how things happened one after another. If you put the reigns of the judges one after the other with the periods of peace and then the oppression that's described all in a line, it would all take centuries to accomplish, when in reality this period may be shorter than a hundred years, and almost certainly less than two centuries. This is not actually a problem for the historicity of the individual stories, though. The book jumps all over the place, speaking of judges from different tribes and oppressions by very different peoples. In the linear view, we are expected to believe that all of Israel, the entire Canaanite territory, was first conquered by the Edomites, who ruled pretty much all the land, then conquered by Israel. Then the Moabites, who conquered all the land. Then all of Israel ruled the land. Then the Canaanites ruled the whole land. Then it was ruled by Israel. Then the Midianites. Then Israel. Then the Ammonites. Then Israel. Then the Philistines. Then the monarchy of Saul. This is an absurd amount of total dominations, and it was probably never meant to be taken that way. The ancient readers would have known that all of these foreign powers were regional powers, and what they dominated was the area around a particular tribe or group of tribes. And by the way, when we look at ancient Sumerian records, the ancient Sumerians kept a traditional king's list in which all the major kings were listed in order. 
But we know that some of these kings ruled at the same time in different cities. And so over there, the different city-states are all sort of getting stuck in a line in a similar way to how the judges are all getting stuck in a line for ancient philosophical, literary, ideological reasons. And so once we realize that what we're looking at is not linear history, but at a collection of stories all occurring in the same historical era at different parts of Canaan, we start to wonder at the clear evidence of composition. Things like the Song of Deborah, which preserve grammatical evidences that it's much older than the surrounding text, reminds us that the final redactors were almost certainly working off some previously existing records, either popular legends or histories written during intervening periods. But of course, lacking any internal or external evidence as to the actual sequence of events which occur in the Book of Judges, we're left to go through them in canonical order, which is fine. It's a good sequence. And they may be vaguely in canonical order just because the events at the very end are pretty significant. Theologically, this is arranged in order from, we could say, the most faithful to God to the least faithful, finally ending in the famous phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which was intended as a far cry of what modern society might consider it to mean. Anyway, theology aside, the book opens with a list of the tribes and places that they did and did not manage to conquer. No mention is made of any defeats, just a failure to conquer being cast upon each of them as a measure of their faithlessness. But of course, part of the problem of the Israelites is that they are not the only ones entering Canaan at this point. Judges chapter 2 overall explains the matter. Israel was unfaithful, but God sends a deliverer, starting with Joshua, whose name Yehoshua literally means Yahweh saves. And the people are good for a generation or so, but then, as it explains... And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. Now, Baal is pretty well known as a particular god of the Canaanites, but the grammar here points out something many modern readers miss. While Baal was the name of a particular god, he was also the title of many gods, and in fact, that one god named Baal himself was divided into many parts. There was Baal Hadad, which is about equivalent to the Akkadian storm god Adad, and probably the chief Baal that the Bible is worried about. But then there's Baal Hamon, Baal Ugarit, Baal Shamem, and many others. Wikipedia actually draws the best analogy here. Baal had local incarnations, much like modern Catholics have a million local incarnations of Mary, like Our Lady of Peace, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Mahal Naina ng Santa Rosio ng Laval de Manila, and so on. So Baal himself is plural, but then you get even more Baals, because in truth, 
Baal just means Lord in the Canaanite language, and many unrelated gods would, as a sign of respect, have been named Lord. In fact, the confusion is so great that it's sometimes hard to tell if a particular ball mentioned in an ancient text is an aspect of the big ball or another god being referred to with an obscure title. Now, what I find particularly amusing is that modern English translations have all transformed the holy name of Yahweh into the English rendition of the word ball. That is to say, we now call our God Lord, and the Canaanites called their God by the same name in their own language, likely for similar reasons of respect. In the Canaanite language, it would be natural to say that all modern Christians worship Baal as well. Anyway, the Bible continues, And they abandoned their Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Astaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Now this section may include Merneptah's expedition, and probably includes every miscellaneous defeat that the biblical authors didn't care to list in detail. But then, each time things are going poorly for the various tribes of Israel, God delivers them to judges, from whom the book derives its name. Now, judge is a curious word. The Hebrew is shofet, and it implies far more than merely judge, at least as we now understand it. For us in modern times, a judge is a supplementary part of a larger government system, who makes decisions based on the laws as handed down by others in a very circumscribed way. A shofet, a biblical judge, is doing the exact same thing but in a far more expansive way. Now, the first thing to remember is that for these tribes in Israel, as was often the case in various ancient societies, there wasn't a concept of legislation. The laws had been established at some point in the past, and it was not for the modern community to change them, merely to implement them. Near Eastern kings saw the judging of cases as a core part of their royal duty, and the famous Law Code of Hammurabi was not actually written in the style of a set of legislations as if he were decreeing new law, but in the style of a set of model judgments, which would guide the judgments of the various courts around his empire. We talked more about that back in episode 50 if you're interested in the Code of Hammurabi. But while a king was also a judge, a judge was not a king. The position of Shofet was fairly common among Canaanite communities, where a regional king, who was himself independent, would appoint a Shofet, 
or multiple shoftim to oversee subsidiary towns, the shofet's job being to render judgments and enforce the laws already existing on behalf of the king, not to rule in his own right. Indeed, it seems that the city of Carthage, originally a Canaanite colony, had been founded under Shofet rule, and by Roman times was headed by a pair of what they called Sufet, likened by the Romans to the consuls of their own city. A number of Bible commentaries and scholars that I have read seem to be more than a bit mystified by the fact that these are called judges, yet seem to be mostly military leaders. And so I want to make it clear that Shofet, both among the Israelites and their neighbors, were fundamentally and profoundly judges. It's not, as some have claimed, a mistranslation. A trouble of some kind or another would come to them. They would reference the laws established either by ancient lawgivers or the gods, or of course, really both. They wouldn't change those laws, but they would render some verdict or another about it. They would then call upon the community to enforce that verdict, and only in some situations would they personally enforce it. And that's the key. The Shofet is not a king. They are not in charge of the community. Rather, they are agents of the law, and by extension, the gods or God. Because while they're not priests, all government was in those days divinely ordained in the minds of the people being governed. The community where a Shofet judged was necessarily small small enough that there was no formal leader, or the formal leader was far away in a distant city, or the formal leader was literally God. The judge does not make his own pronouncements. The community brings troubles to him, and the community expects itself to abide by the Shofet's judgments. None of the judges really exemplifies the formal position of judge better than perhaps the most unconventional of them, the woman judge Deborah. Now, the fact that a woman could be a judge really emphasizes this is not a position of authority, and it's not a military position, but it's one of general community respect. Also, the fact that she's sitting between the tribes of Benjamin and Ephraim emphasizes this even more clearly, since the tribes themselves have their own tribal hierarchy. This is actual, literal patriarchy. And the judgeship is a common religious legal institution to which the tribes and patriarchs can go not only to solve personal disputes, but also disputes between tribes and notionally between the people and God. Obviously, there would not in those days have been a clear distinction between a legal and religious authority in the way we so naturally think of nowadays. Anyway, Deborah is hanging out under a tree while the people of Israel are being oppressed for their wickedness. The people cry out to God for help, and then they go to Deborah and ask Deborah to deliver a judgment as part of crying out to God for help. The Bible's a 
bit vague with this phrase, but it's pretty clear that she's expected to look through the law and reach a verdict, thereby delivering God's judgment upon the wickedness of the oppressors. Her judgment involves decreeing that an army should be formed, led by Barak, and that this army should defeat the Canaanites. She's not in charge of this army, and indeed has to mediate in the style of a local notable trying to convince another notable, not decree in the style of a king ordering his soldiers. Then, of course, they have a big battle, and then afterwards, J.L. hammers a stake through the enemy's head just for fun. The jurisdiction of a Shofet judge is vastly greater than a modern judge who can't actually order a war declared or can't order all kinds of things. But in essence, their main task is not to formally lead the community, and it's not to lead any armies. It's not even to kill enemies, just to decide what is right, then announce it to the community so that the community can go and undertake the necessary deeds. That said, it's very easy to see why so many readers of the Book of Judges see the Shofet as a position of military leadership. Deborah is the only one mentioned out of the twelve judges who doesn't kill anybody with her bare hands. And of course, pretty much every judgment recorded in the book is a violent sentence against some or another group. This was not an age or society where prisons or police were much in evidence, especially with such minimal governments. Instead, we really do see a model of community rule, where the community polices itself under the guidance of a fixed set of laws interpreted by a judge, that policing can be stoning a criminal within the society or forming an army to attack enemies outside of society. And of course, the judge is not outside of society themselves. And so when we say the community is going to carry out the judge's sentence, well, the judge is part of the community and some of them go carry out their own sentences in the greatest style of judge dread. In such a society now, military leaders, great warriors, and charismatic prophets can easily rise to position of informal community leader, which is why we so often see these sorts of men in that position. For example, my favorite judge is Shamgar, who's mentioned after the story of Ehud, and we hear nothing more than, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Of course, before him was Ehud, who assassinated the fat king Eglon of Moab, and before that, at least in the book, was Othniel, who organized a battle against a guy who is called king of Mesopotamia, but by which they probably mean a king of the northern Euphrates up in Aram, Syria. Now, there's also Gideon, who's famous for being a bit hesitant in the face of the Lord, but for those around him who do not get the narrative version of him actually speaking to God, they just see his actions, he must have seemed unusually zealous, which appears to be the quality which brought men to his cause and eventually made him a local leader and judge. 
But of course, Gideon's story ends on a sour note. He's asked to become king and declines, but then instead creates a golden idol for the tribe to worship. The later judges are increasingly corrupt after this. Samson, famously, is a model of everything that Israel is and everything it should not be. Born into a covenant, he violates every last precept. Born with a duty, he neglects it utterly, excepting perhaps only at the very last moment when he trades his life to collapse a building full of Philistines. And after this, order completely breaks down among the twelve tribes. As the book points out, there is at this time no king, and while community rule is great when the community is strong, community rule among a corrupt community is utter corruption. The people no longer support each other, and they no longer support the law, following after idols, buying priests, and ultimately committing really shocking crimes that get omitted from most illustrated children's Bibles and would frankly probably be omitted from an HBO TV series about the Book of Judges for being even beyond their standards of sex and violence and sexual violence. But one final thing to note before we close the book on the Judges is to note that this really subjectively feels like a solid description of a particular era of history. Now, we can question whether the kill counts were really so high, or if Samson really did get magic powers from his long hair and details like this, but the institution of the Shofet is what interests me the most. It clearly existed in neighboring cultures, and we know that Israel existed in this time, but was considered by the Egyptians to be a people group, not a nation, which may indicate that they may not have had a king or proper government structures or large settlements, all of which matches the biblical description. And while there is no direct extra-biblical evidence of the Israelite judgeship institution, why would they remember a century or more of living in this way, setting nearly a dozen stories of heroes during this historical period if they never had any such institution. Now, if they had Shoftim, they must have had a law for those judges to apply, since that matches the pattern both of the Bible and what we know of the institution elsewhere in Canaan. This does not necessarily have to be the law of Moses as it exists today. We know that even when the ancient Near East believed in static, unchanging laws, they did drift over time as judgments are made, sort of the way the modern Supreme Court can shift the whole direction of American law. But archaeology did suggest last episode that there was some sort of avoidance of pork and religious icons in early Israelite communities. And so, as we move towards the great and fabled united monarchy, which many people do not think existed, we can look back at the period of exodus and conquest with historical eyes. The most skeptical views, I think, simply don't hold up. There was some people of Israel that appeared during the Bronze Age collapse who were not there before as a people. We don't know where they came from, 
but they are very certain that they spent some time as Egyptian slaves. They looked a lot like Canaanites and were often quite integrated into the wider culture, which the Bible accepts but criticizes. They had some sort of law enforced by the community and monitored by judges who were often corrupt. These were a people who existed. There's so much we don't know because they existed in an historical dark period and there's plenty of room to doubt many or most of the details. But I think the fullest skepticism, which says that some of these details seem wrong so none of it happened, is ultimately unjustified. There is room for doubt, there is room for faith, and there is space to say that there were at least a people here. And if the record got distorted over time, then they were still at least real. And because I think that the period of Judges is not a total fictional time period, I tend to give credence to the idea that there was at least temporarily a united Israelite monarchy. And it's also part of the reason why I think there really were some sort of conquests that get stuck under the label of Joshua's conquests. However, as we will soon see, there is next to no evidence for an actual united monarchy, just a big old gap. And so next time, we're going to pretty much just read through the biography of Saul and David as if they were historical characters, and then we're going to say, yeah, we have no idea if any of this tr is true. Uh, but on that very topic, next week is going to be a two-for-one special, in that I want to release the normal main episode entering into the topic of the United Monarchy, but also there are some issues that this series has raised. Matters of personal faith and historical evidence, as well as a number of miscellaneous misconceptions that I've run into, and just generally how we understand the Bible that's not really related to the main narrative and its ultimately personal opinions instead of the oldest stories. And so next week, there's going to be two episodes being published, an official episode and an unofficial theological and methodological, it's probably just going to be a rant, on an assortment of topics, something skippable for those who don't actually want my opinions, just the oldest stories, but something that I hope is going to be of value to those maybe who are interested in a super subjective personal opinion about the most important portion of all of ancient history. Thank you for listening.